Hello, and welcome to episode two of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I am Jeff Sackman, and with me is Carl Bialik. Hi, Jeff. Uh, hi, Carl. Thank you for joining me, as always. Always, in this case, is a sample of two, but still very much valued. Um, thank everyone. Thanks to everyone who listened last week. We got a lot of great feedback, and uh, we're really happy to be, be doing this. Have another outlet for our tennis chatter. And I want to jump right in this week. Carl and I were bouncing back and forth with some ideas about what to talk about this week. And one thing that we've been talking about for years is, is the degree to which doubles gets the short shrift in tennis anal analysis, tennis broadcasting, tennis punditry, pretty much tennis everything. Doubles is kind of the, the ugly, ugly stepchild that no one wants to talk about very much. But we do. So here we are. And there's a couple different things going on that I think will give us a good a launching pad into talking doubles. And the first one is we have a new number one in, in men's doubles, Henry Kontinen of Finland. And at the same time, last week in Miami, we had Jack Sock reach the finals of a master tournament. Sock has prioritized his doubles play over his singles play, I mean, vice versa, his singles play over his doubles play. So he's not going to be playing a full doubles schedule but you know, big fans of Tennis Abstract and, and readers of, of Carl's and my stuff will know back in, back in the fall, I wrote an article for 538.com using doubles ELO rankings that showed that Jack Sock was, by that method anyway, the best doubles player in tennis. Even though he wasn't prioritizing doubles, um, even though he doesn't have you know, a steady partner at this point, he's arguably the best guy in, in tennis. So, so we, have, we have these two different systems competing. One, the ATP rankings um, prioritize the guys who are playing week in, week out, like Continent, who's great. And I, did, I just ran the, re-ran the ELO rankings for doubles and discovered two things. One, Jack Sock, on the basis of his Miami final run and all of his, his success in the past, he is still the number one doubles player in tennis. Even though he, he's not playing a full schedule, he's trading out partners one week to the next. But number two, um, close to his career high, is Continent. So, so we have these two guys who are pretty close. There's a 50-point ELO gap between the two. Carl, here, here's how, what I want to ask you. Let's say you and I are playing a, a pro-am winner-take-all doubles match, and, and one of us gets to play with Jack Sock. The other one gets to play with Continent. And for all you listeners out there, Carl and I have, have spent a lot of time on court together, and I'd say we're, we're pretty evenly matched. So, so let's just stipulate for this exercise that Carl and I are equivalent, equivalently pretty bad tennis players. One of us gets to play with Continent, one of us gets to play with, with, with Sock. So Carl, knowing what, what you know about the analytics and, and having watched these players, who do you want to play with, Continent or Sock? First of all, I should first say, I should how, say generous how generous it is, it is you, you. that you would, you would put it evenly. I mean, we, there's a story on your website, Tennis Abstract, which showed pretty clearly uh, our head-to-head, -head, and it is not so even, but very generous. I think uh, I play more doubles, so, so that might help even it out. There's also video of me playing, so if you think Jeff was being modest about our level of tennis, uh, think again and, and watch the video and laugh. I think... I would trust your rankings and take sock because one of the things that your method and, and kind of the ATP's method does is it 
it it does take your, your method takes into account who stock is playing with. So he he isn't penalized if he's playing with a weaker partner. Uh, in fact, it it boosts his ranking if he does well with a weaker partner. Whereas Cotton is playing with John Pierce, who's ninth in your in your rankings, uh, eighth actually. Um, so Continent has a higher degree of difficulty to achieve his ranking. So you could say, okay, he's he's achieved more than Sock, but Sock has to, with his non full time double schedule and prioritizing scheduling singles. Where does he want to play singles? He has to pick up with new partners all the time. So I'm going to take Sock because he was teaming with Nick Monroe. He's had successful partnerships with Vasek Pospisil and many other players in one offs. Uh, he just won a big doubles rubber against Australia, against a pretty good Australian doubles team in Davis Cup this past weekend. So I think I'm going to take Sock, but I don't feel incredibly confident about it. When I watch Continent, I see a guy who looks to me like he has pretty much no weakness and knows he has no weakness, and that's that's hard to beat. Sock has a lot of cockiness and a lot of skills, but possibly over a long match, you and your partner would figure out how to uh, take advantage of his backhand at big points. Yeah, I, w I would agree with that. I, it, even though I've, I've said a few, let's say not overwhelmingly positive things about Jack Sock over the years, I'm not a huge fan of his game. Um, I also, you know, I always go with the algorithm if, if, if you press me on it. So I, I would pick Sock too. So we're gonna have to flip a coin and Hopefully, whoever Continent gets stuck with is is not going to have um, too angry of a doubles partner on their hands in our hypothetical situation. Um, certainly, we'd both be pretty lucky to be playing with somebody like like Henry Continent. But um, that leads me to another question. That this is another thing we've discussed before: the idea that, that Jack Sock is not a a traditional doubles player. Certainly, not a doubles specialist. Like you. you when when tennis commentators talk about double, like a good double specialist or someone who's really benefited from playing doubles, they're thinking of guys with really good hands, really good net technique, really good uh, approach technique. Um, maybe not. I mean, some doubles players are very powerful, but maybe not a, a power-based game. Certainly not a ground stroke power-based game. Even though there are a few exceptions to that rule, uh, but sock is 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 the extreme. I mean. It, I know you like the the quote. I think one of the Bryans said that that Sock's forehand was like everybody else's serve; that it just launches off the court. So, so that that's a major weapon in doubles in a way that that I mean, it's a weapon in singles too. It's a weapon against you know any human being who's unlucky enough to play tennis against it. But it's it's even more of a weapon in doubles, I think. So so Sock has this one-two punch kind of game that that actually translates pretty well. And and it, it's interesting he's paired with Pospisil because he's another guy who fits that mold. But do you think we're seeing a, a shift from the, from the traditional net, hands, approach, technique, like kind of double-specific skills specialist to something new where somebody like Jack Sock or Vasek Pospisil can be a dominant doubles player even without really displaying a lot of those skills? That's, that's a really interesting question. By the way, I think the Bryans compared his forehand to a smash, which is uh, arguably an even more dominant shot in doubles than a serve. And I, I think kind of what they meant is he could stay up at the net and if he gets a high ball, smash it, and he has a pretty good smash. But when Sock is back at the baseline and gets time on his forehand, they were saying he's almost as dangerous, which which also creates this 
non-traditional style where you can be at an advantage even with both of your opponents at the net and one of you or both of you back if you have time on your forehand. And I, I think that's the real uh, distinguishing factor that can explain why someone like Sock is successful, but still the traditional doubles game is mostly successful. I think Sock's forehand is two of is one of two of a kind. Uh, the other one being Nadal's, Rafael Nadal's. And looking at your rankings and also recent doubles results, Nadal doesn't play doubles even as often as Sock does, and certainly doesn't prioritize it. But he too, while not having the most traditional net game, although a pretty solid one, he can be in control of a point with his forehand at the baseline and both opponents at net. And those two are the two singles players near the top of the doubles rankings, but then pretty much everyone else is primarily successful in doubles and does have a more traditional game. Even Pospisil, I would say, has some of those traditional skills you're describing, and he does serve in volley now and then. So I think you can either be a great traditional doubles player, like the Bryan brothers, like Nicholas Mayut, who's right behind Continent, like Continent himself, I think has a pretty traditional doubles game, even though he does have a lot of power. Or you can have one of the two best forehands in the world. But otherwise, the the doubles prowess and experience and prioritization is still going to win out against most singles players. So any any kids or aspiring juniors out there listening to this show, I hope you're taking our advice that that if you want to become a successful doubles player, all you need to do, it's a simple one-step process, just develop one of the two best forehands in the world. And, and there you go. There, there's your success right there. And I, I would agree. It's, it, it, it does look like there, there's still a lot of room for traditional doubles specialization, traditional doubles skills, um, which is encouraging because as commentators have been going on about for, for at least a decade now, we are seeing it become more and more difficult to be to, to use those skills in singles. You see very little serve and volleying, um, really not not very much aggressive net play. So it, it's good to know those guys can still succeed uh, in doubles. And and Pierre Herbert, the Mayu's doubles partner, is is a good example of that. See, he plays pretty aggressively in uh, in singles as well, but. In doubles, he's able to really to really leverage that. So guys like Ian Continen, even even though they're coming up of a, a different generation than a lot of the double specialists, since doubles used so old, it's encouraging to see Continen, who's in his twenties. Uh, I think John Pierce still has a few months left of his twenties. Herbert is twenty six or twenty seven. Sock is young. So so we could see some some good doubles players with different styles, even a decade down the line. I remember when I when I wrote the piece for Five Thirty Eight last fall. I don't remember whether it made the final edit, but I was was joking that even though you think of Sock and Herbert as kind of diametric opposites in the world of doubles, uh, you can also imagine them playing together at the, in the in the doubles at the World Tour Finals in 10 years. And who knows if those two guys will still be playing singles at that point when they're you know, 35, 36. But holy crap, that could be one heck of a doubles team if, if those two or one of those two in continent join forces. And if, if you could see... You could see a, a dynasty of the sort that challenges the Bryan brothers, I think. Yeah, and one thing that I find disappointing about doubles on both sides, ATP and WTA, is that there aren't more people like Martina Hingis, let's say, who are done with singles, are great at tennis, have incredible skills, and are draws for the crowd uh, because there's so much personal capital built up by players with fans over the years. 
and who, who don't just stick around and play doubles. I mean, there are all sorts of exhibition tours you can go on and they're fine, but it feels like there's less at stake than potentially playing for Grand Slams, playing Davis Cup or Fed Cup. And I, I do hope that even if Sock now isn't prioritizing doubles, if he's ready to retire from singles in eight, 10 years, but is still a, a great player in, in, you know, in good health at doubles, I hope he considers sticking around. I mean, I think a lot of Federer and Nadal fans would be very happy if those two guys decided to play a few extra years on tour to extend their careers by playing doubles. And I think both of them, especially Nadal, based on his results and his uh, his DLO ranking, as you call it, double ZLO ranking, uh, really could contend for a while. Uh, so I, I think part of the problem is that there's a bit of chicken and egg here because doubles doesn't have too many of the universally throughout tennis recognizable names like Hingis, Federer, Nadal. Uh, it, it has trouble drawing crowds. It has trouble, therefore, getting on TV. It has trouble, therefore, justifying a big share of prize money or sponsorship. So I think if one player joined Hingis and what she's been doing the last few years, coming back from retirement to play doubles and win grand slams in, in women's doubles and mixed, uh, maybe you really could see more doubles matches filling large stadiums and maybe that would encourage even more top players to kind of retire into doubles, which would be a thrill for me. Yeah, that's a really interesting thought. I think in fact, there have been a couple other instances of players like that. John McEnroe was playing tour events and I don't know how old he was when he finally stopped playing tour level events, but really old. Martina Navratilova is obviously another example. Um, she won a mixed doubles title when she was incredibly old by tennis standards. Um, so it, it has happened, but you're right. It, it's very rare. And it, it's, it is kind of fun to fantasize about someone like Federer and Nadal uh, ret retiring into doubles. I like that phrase. And, and you can, Im you can imagine it being even more common on the, on the women's tour, I think, because at, at least over the last generation or so, you've seen women retiring earlier than the most recent generation of men. Cause the most recent generation of men are, <laughs> Like they're not retiring at all. You've got Tommy Haas who just won a match either today or yesterday. I think yesterday um, against Riley Opelka, who's like 20 years younger than he is. Apparently, these guys aren't going away. So it, it, it's it's difficult to even imagine quite what that would mean for someone someone like that to retire into doubles. But on the other hand, um, you have players who are hanging it up. But it, it's Ana Ivanovic is kind of a horrible example. I can't really imagine her becoming a, a double specialist, but but that's one example of a player who could play a reduced schedule, um, less wear and tear on her body, but a huge draw. You know, imagine what that would do to the uh, for women's doubles if you had Hingis, Ivanovic, maybe a couple other players like of, of that stature. Um, as you say, it, it's an interesting thing to think about, and and it also would lead me to speculate. Having seen people like like McEnroe and Navratilova in the past, and now Hingis, you have these guys who guys and women, of course, who are playing on, on Legends tours, playing exhibitions, and you wonder, where's the line? Like, what's the age at which you can't be competitive anymore? You can certainly put on a tremendously entertaining exhibition at age 50 or even age 60. So, so if you were to go back to somebody like, I don't know, Merit Safin, or someone who had to retire due to injury, like Mario Ancic, um, would those guys be would they be threats on the doubles tour at age 43? Would they be, 
people of say Daniel Nestor's generation or Leander Pace's generation, would would they would they be competitive now? And I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, what do you think the line would be for somebody like that, Carl? I I have thought about this before, in part because of McEnroe, because I've seen him play a, a number of exhibitions, and he looks to me like you know the scenario you pose at the start of this conversation. Pick anyone for pro am. I, I could have been. Uh, trolley and, and chosen someone you didn't offer as an option. And I might have chosen McEnroe. I mean, especially for a really, really short match. Like, clearly, he's not anywhere near the best doubles player in the world anymore. And I think playing a three set match or even a five set match at Wimbledon or Davis Cup and coming back and playing another one would be a lot to ask. But he still has a really good serve, tremendous hand skills at net has adjusted well to the modern game and, and you know, changing up his racket and, and taking advantage of that. And yeah, I think he could still win a match or two on tour in doubles. So I don't know where the line is. I'd love to find out. I think one of the real obstacles is the drug testing regime. I think Andy Roddick was thinking, not that he was ever really a, a great doubles player, but he played a lot of doubles matches and, and won some and and is is still a draw, especially in the US. And I think he wanted to uh, take a wild card maybe with Marty Fish at the U.S. Open a year or two ago, and they just needed to register in time and, and didn't because of they needed to start being drug tested to, to clear them uh, for play. And I understand why that's a need, but I think that would be a big obstacle as opposed to just transitioning directly from singles to doubles. But, you know, thinking of, you mentioned Ivanovic, and while she is a big draw, she's not a great doubles player. Two players who maybe are less of a draw, but who I'd love to see uh, consider doubles when they're done with singles, both Grand Slam champions, Schiavone and Stoser. Uh, and they're linked for me because of that memorable, I think, 2010 French Open final they played against each other. But, you know, Schiavone has such a nice net game and slice and and very uh, traditional game that I think would, would translate well to doubles if she played it more. And Stoser has had tremendous success in doubles, including a really nice net game. And then, of course, we're not really mentioning them. It's funny to talk about Ivanovic, who's so much younger and is retiring. Uh, and Stoser is younger too, but the the two women who have had the most double success together and who are among the oldest of the top singles players are the Williams sisters. And if they decided to extend their careers playing doubles together, I think no one in tennis would, would be sad about having a few more years of them on tour, except maybe yeah. the rest of the doubles field in the WTA. Yeah, absolutely. The idea of, of the Williams sisters prioritizing doubles is, that's scary to think about it, 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 it it's amazing to think what what they could accomplish um I, I was trying to imagine various segues from what you were talking about and you, you gave me too much material for a decision so, so i'm going with a with something that wasn't even on our outline for things we want to talk about today you mentioned skivoni and stozer as maybe not really top level draws but still big names, obviously, Grand Slam contenders, good doubles players, people you can imagine being doubles threats for years to come. And let's think about that for a second. We've got two players who both spent some time in the top 10. I believe both, we've seen them both in Grand Slam finals. Uh, they're, they're both popular, I believe, in their, their home countries. So, and one of those home countries has a slam, of course, in Australia. But this is something else we've talked about off, off the air a little bit is there, there's sort of a, a, not sort of, there is definitely a power law distribution of star power in, well, in the world, probably in general. But 
in any field, certainly in tennis, where you have like the absolute mega stars, the Serena's and the Federer's and the Nadal's, and then you have some other big stars, and then it goes sharply down. So when you think about who's going to fill an arena for an exhibition, it, you really, you can't go very far down the list before you're talking about filling a really small stadium instead of filling an arena. So, so we can talk about Federer, Nadal sticking around, Hingis sticking around, the Williams sisters, maybe Ivanovic falls into that category. I can't believe I'm mentioning her name so much in terms of, of, of a doubles conversation. But, but I would think when you get down to Skivoni and Stozer, I'm not sure either of those is maybe outside of Australia a bigger draw than, say, Max Mirny, who also peaked pretty close to this. I think he peaked at, at 11th in the world. I could be wrong about that. But he's, he's stuck around as a, as a very good double player for a long time. I don't, I don't know when exactly he retired from singles, but I think we're pushing 10 years. So he's, he's an example of, of exactly what you're talking about. He had a very successful singles career. Um, he, he was playing a lot of doubles then also, but he, he retired into doubles and has, has been an important part of the tour for a long time. But I don't think anyone would point to Mirny and say that because of his singles prowess, because people know his name, he's made the men's doubles tour more popular than say another, I don't know, another continent or another Nestor or some, someone like that. So I don't have a good question for you about this, but, but do you think it would make a difference to have a couple players like Sozer and Schiavone um, in the ranks instead of a couple of players who might just be double specialists? And, and I, I, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit, I don't even know a lot of the, a lot of the double specialists on, on the women's side because it's just so difficult to actually watch women's doubles. But, um, but do, you think, do you think it would have much of an impact in the popularity uh, or accessibility of doubles to have players who aren't first-tier stars, like the Williams tiers, but are who you might call second-tier stars? I think it would have some difference. I agree there are definitely tiers, and Stoser and Schiavone are not in the top. I, I do think it helps to be able to say Grand Slam champions before their names and that they, they do lodge in people's heads more than Max Mirny would for his singles career. I, I'm just thinking in terms of the mentality of people at who, I, who I've sat next to and overheard at the U.S. Open, French Open, Wimbledon, and they're deciding what court to go on next, and they, they don't – it's between matches on the, on the main stadium – and they look at the schedule and say, oh, Sam Stoser, yeah, Sam, I remember Sam. Yeah, it'd be fun to watch her play doubles. That those seem to be, that the, the sort of decision on whether to watch doubles often comes down to, you. do you recognize the name? And I think you're more likely to when it's someone who's a slam champion. But yeah, I think those two players on their own will not you know, change the course of doubles history. But I, I guess I would see them more as indicators of this is happening more if one or both of them decides, yeah, it would be fun to stay on tour with this wacky sport for a few more years, keep this career going and not, you know, not ruin my body in singles and be able to stay pretty healthy and do all the other fun things that come with being a touring tennis professional. Okay. I, I can buy that. I think there is a difference between um, the sort of decision-making you're thinking about of, you know, I, I've bought myself a ground pass to the, to, to day four at the U S open. What am I going to do with myself all day before I go get a pretzel? And the alternative of I'm sitting at home watching TV and by some magical power I have, I, I can stream from any of the 18 courts in Flushing and I'm going to choose to watch, watch Stoza or watch women's doubles. Um, so that, that, that's a whole other issue of, of, because I think 
I'm not sure exactly how to how to approach this because it's a big subject and it, it, it's a tough one to pin down. But I think a lot of people have they have a, a generally positive feeling about doubles that they like it. They want it to be more popular. They like playing it. They remember watching somebody hit an incredible, clever volley or I, I don't know. You'll rarely hear somebody say, hey, double sucks. I don't care about doubles. But when it comes to voting with your wallet, voting with your streaming eyeballs, voting with voting with anything really beyond just really lightweight virtue signaling, um, people don't vote for doubles. And at, at, at one of the times that people do vote for doubles is if you're at a Grand Slam tournament and you're wondering what to do next and you're like, hey, there's Sam Stozer. I'd love to watch her. Let's head over to court six. But when it, no matter how many courts you stream, I don't know how many people are going to tune into that. Uh, how it would affect a broadcasting deal or how the tours would, would promote doubles. Like, so I, I guess what, I, what I'd like to know your opinion on, Carl, is, is do you think there's a path to making doubles considerably more popular or is it always going to be like a, a far cry from singles popularity with the, with the occasional like exhibition type peaks? Like, is, is there a way to get out of that ghetto? Well, I think this ties in with a big debate about the tennis events of last week and Davis Cup. And every time Davis Cup happens, people, especially in the U.S. Uh, tennis media, lament the declining relevance to U.S. sports fans of Davis Cup, which probably has something to do with the U.S. team not being as good as it used to be because the U.S. men aren't as good as they used to be. But there's also this lament that the top stars in the game are not playing it often enough to keep it relevant and their lack of interest breeds lack of interest in fans. And I think helping Davis cup could really help uh, doubles because I think it's such a great showcase for doubles. And it's, it's a, when single stars do participate in Davis cup, they are, usually make themselves available for doubles. And it's a, it's a great opportunity to watch them play in a best of five match for their country uh, in, in an incredible partisan environment. One of the ideas I threw out in a piece I wrote for Tennis Abstract recently about tennis scheduling was tying Davis Cup to Fed Cup. And I intended it mainly just as scheduling it at the same time. But I can imagine a world in which, like the Olympics, they were a combined team event, men and women, and could feature men's doubles, women's doubles, and mixed doubles. And I, I think about some of the uh, some of the most exciting moments from IPTL, which is a, an off-season exhibition league happening. I think all, mostly or entirely in Asia uh, in the late fall, winter, in between seasons, and that has um, all the different doubles formats and. It doubles is at least half of the matches and really engages the crowd because players are playing as a team and it's connected to the singles play and how they do in doubles determines how the team does. And I think doubles really shines there. The Olympics is another example where uh, a lot of single stars play, where the doubles matches get a lot of attention, where Nadal in the men's doubles and um, the uh, and, and Hingis in, in, in the women's doubles and Venus Williams in, in mixed doubles. There, there were there were some really big stars headlining doubles, and I think it was it felt just as important because a gold medal is a gold medal. And 
it feels like the ship has sailed on on a doubles Grand Slam title feeling as big as the singles. I mean, if you ask someone like Jack Sock, how did it feel to win Wimbledon? It, he doesn't compare it to what it would feel like to win Wimbledon singles. But I could see in a team event where a doubles win matters just as much as singles, doubles rising in profile. And if it happened, if it rose in profile there, then it could matter more the rest of the year and people could prepare more the rest of the year for those events. So maybe that's a far-fetched scenario, but I think it, it might take something somewhat far-fetched like Federer deciding to play three years of doubles or the Williams sisters playing three years of doubles to really turn it around from a, being a kind of niche event or a sideshow. That's interesting. There's a, I think you raised a lot of interesting ideas there. And, and one of which is you didn't explicitly mention world team tennis, but you're pretty much talking about the same thing with the IPTL. That, and what I always think about with doubles is it, it seems to be in an awkward middle ground in, in, when you think about what fans tend to engage with. If you think about the, the entities that really get sports fans excited, you've got two extremes. One are the superstars. Like It doesn't matter what sport they're playing. If you've got somebody like Roger Federer or Derek Jeter or you know, pick your favorite guy from your favorite sport, you have these icons who doesn't matter what they're doing, how they're doing it, sometimes even how well they're doing it, people want to watch, period. On the other extreme, you have you have teams. So you have you can walk down the street anywhere in the world and you'll see people wearing Yankees hats. Um, like people will watch the Yankees, they will watch the Lakers. And even at the other end of the extreme with teams, like you've got people in in Milwaukee who will swear by the Brewers no matter when I started becoming a Brewers fan 15 years ago they were in the middle of a string of horrible like 95 lost seasons but still like I was for some bizarre reason I was really digging the Brewers and doubles kind of doesn't really fit in that framework you had except for some very rare exceptions like the Bryan brothers you don't have teams that exist for a long time for fans to really get in, to really to really get involved with emotionally you do have these stars i'm putting that in air quotes that you can't see um who as we're we're talking about right now aren't usually big stars so you and i carl we, we i think i can speak for both of us when i say we we idolize leander pays but Leander Pays isn't outside of India. He isn't the kind of megastar who attracts fans to the game, and certainly someone like Continent, as impressive as he is, um, he's, he's he's not a megastar by any stretch of anyone's imagination. So, so the trick is how to get people engaged in doubles without uh, without being at either one of those poles. And I think y y your idea of some kind of combined event. Davis Cup, Fed Cup that maybe parallels the structure of IPTL and World Team Tennis that actually doesn't just showcase doubles, but actually prioritizes it. Um, because with, as, as you point out, Davis Cup is often what people talk about when they talk about um, showcasing doubles. But I think you might need to go one step further because the doubles event can be, um, it, 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 it can be crucial in determining the outcome of a tie. Um, it certainly can be exciting but it's also only one point out of five. So it doesn't matter how good your doubles team is. If your singles players aren't as good as the other guy's singles players, you, you, have, no ch you have no chance. But on the other hand, with IPTL and World Team Tennis, I'm not an expert on the rules there, but you, you've got, I think, more sets of doubles than you do of singles. So if, if, you, are op if you optimize your roster for doubles, you might actually have a pretty good chance. 
So you can have Hingis playing for the, I don't know, for whatever IPTL team she was playing for or Bupati or someone like that, who, who's a real difference maker. And A, that could get people more involved emotionally in the doubles just as fans who show up for an event. Um, but it, it also actually puts doubles first. Um, so I guess, Carl, I, did, I, I wasn't really building up to a question there, but anything, anything to add about that before we, we spend a little time on something other than doubles this week? Uh, just to mention that Laver Cup, which is this new exhibition event that is starting, I think, this summer and is, is going to be Europe versus the world, is promoting Federer and Nadal playing together in doubles for Europe as a big draw for the event. I see that in a lot of their promotional material. So, so they're clearly thinking along those lines too. I think it's unfortunate and still unexplained to me. I asked about this at the US Open last year, why Laver Cup is men only. And I think it would be a much more exciting event if it were men and women. But it shows that they are thinking that they ought to offer something different than what's available on tour, which these days feels like a Federer and Nadal singles match almost every week, which obviously isn't sustainable. But point is Federer and Nadal haven't played doubles together. I think even in an exhibition, except maybe, you know, for a game or two switching off during a really loose exhibition format. So they, they see the, the kind of appeal of taking familiar stars and putting them in a different position including on the same side of the net. And I think there are a number of people kind of thinking in this direction and hopefully enough people think in the same direction that, that we can raise the profile of this. I think th this part of the sport that both of us clearly think is underserved because how many tennis podcasts would spend this long talking about doubles? Well, I, as we, we move off to a different subject, I, I want to highlight maybe uh, disagree somewhat with what you just said about about the, you think you see innovation in terms of people thinking, thinking of taking familiar stars and doing something different with them. What I see is a lot of promoters wanting to take familiar stars, period, full stop. Um, because I think we all know if, if you put Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal on television or in front of an arena doing pretty much anything, um, you could have them playing croquet and thousands of fans would watch every shot. Um, count every whatever there is to count in croquet and that, that's kind of what I was getting at with the with the power law comment earlier that it, 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 if the goal is to raise the profile of of double there, there's got to be a way to have to raise the profile in a way that isn't so dependent on what's really a, a, an incredibly small group of people these these mega stars who can who bring millions of fans with them there just aren't that many players of that stature but I do want to move on a little bit. We're not going to spend a, a lot more time on the podcast this week in general, and we, we had so many other things we wanted to talk about, most of which we aren't going to get to. But on this theme of, of taking the familiar stars, um, we are now, I think, two weeks away from the return of Maria Sharapova, and she's returning with a wild card in Stuttgart. It, that one tournament itself is controversial because she returns on Wednesday, which is the first possible day for her to return from her suspension. So the tournament starts on Monday. She's not eligible to play on Monday. So she's kind of got a special dispensation from the tennis gods on that one. She's also got a wild card lined up for Rome for Madrid. I think it's still up in the air whether she's going to get a, a wild card for the French Open. But I wrote a, a piece about this a couple weeks ago that 
pointed out that given the incentives in place for tournaments, again, because they, they want they want to get as many of these megastars as they can, however they can, um, besides the besides the Grand Slams, which are their own megastars in a way, they have they have their own immense attractiveness. Um, every other tournament has incentives 99% in favor of giving Maria Sharapova whatever she wants. And so far, they've all lined up to do so. So do, where do you come down on this, Carl? Do you think that that tournaments should be handing wild cards to a player who's coming off a, a drug suspension? I think it's really tough to tell tournaments what to do, period, especially with one of the only sort of uh, the chips that they can play to to help themselves and become more viable. I just think it's a really tough business. I'm pretty sympathetic to them. I agree with you in theory that it feels like a logical rule to bar them from giving wild cards to players coming off a of suspension, make that make those players earn, earn their way back on tour. Um, but I, I just, we see so many tournaments struggle. We see empty seats. Uh, there, there just isn't that much TV revenue to go around tournaments keep closing and it, it's just a tough business to run. So I, I don't begrudge them the opportunity to potentially sell more tickets, get more eyeballs and, and sponsorship by having one of the most recognizable biggest stars in the game come. I, I think the wildcard system in general still makes the player win matches to, to earn points. Like she, she's not going to get very far if she gets wild cards into these events, but isn't ready to play and, and loses in the first round. And she probably will stop getting the wild cards eventually if, if she's just a, a bust at every event. But I, I think I just feel enough, enough sympathy for the difficulty of running the tournament that, that I don't mind seeing them uh, do what they can to get her to play. Yeah, I, I agree with that. One of the things that frustrates me about wild cards is that you can explain all the all the decisions that tournaments make. Like I, I've been pretty vocal over the years um, against wild cards for various reasons, and I, I by saying all that, I, I I don't mean to say that anyone is doing anything stupid. Like no individual actor is acting against their own best interests, because obviously, if if you're if you are Stuttgart, then you want you want a big name in your tournament. That's that's all there is to it. Even if you are a higher profile event like the Italian Open or or um, the Madrid Master, not Master, but the, the tournament in Madrid, then Sharapova in probably sells you more tickets, increases the profile of your event, gives you more press coverage. It's all a snowball that she she helped build for you. So it it, it makes perfect sense. The the question is just there's a couple different questions with with the with the drug issue, but in general for me it's it's who is who's being sacrificed, I guess, because if you take it this argument to its logical extreme that tournaments need all the help they can get, then why stop at three wild cards for a 32 player draw? Why not give them five or seven or even even number? I don't know. Um, let them take as many players as they think will make their tournament more attractive. And at at the other extreme, you end up with an invitational. You no longer have the the sort of like entry system tournament that we have now but the point being that every wild card you hand to Sharapova or to the 17 year old hotshot who's just coming on the radar in your home country you are you are taking a very 
very valuable opportunity away from someone who has almost earned it. So at, at a tournament like the Italian Open or, or in Madrid, the, the draws are extremely competitive. I don't know exactly where the cuts are uh, for the, the women's draw there, but I'm guessing they're around number 50 in the world. So you've got someone out there like, I don't know, maybe Monica Nicolescu, who's, I don't know where she is exactly, but let's say number 51 in the world. Um, you've got a few players right at that cut who probably aren't going to be contending for the title, but you know, could have a good run, could end up in the round of 16, quarterfinals, get some valuable points. But instead, you relegate them to qualifying because the tournament director wants someone who's going to sell more tickets. And again, I totally understand why the tournament directors do the things they do. But from the perspective of the whole sport, the idea that a few players, whether they're you know the next Grigor Dimitrov, who everyone thinks is the is the next big star, or a ret- or a re- returning player like Sharapova. Wildcards tend to be concentrated in the hands of a few players, a few countries, at the exclusion of a lot of others. And if we want this game to be fair, there needs to be a way not to exclude those others. We need, the route to success needs to be, if not exactly equal, should be pretty equal. Yeah, I... I think your power law that you cited before will come into play here. I think in practice, my argument that tournaments need all the help they can get is is sort of constrained by you're not going to get much help with that fourth wild card or sixth wild card or whatever number past the first few. It, it's hard for me to think of anyone past Sharapova in the women's game who would be who would get in on the basis of that of, of being a big draw. Um, and you know, instead, the wild cards often get used for players from the same country, players who are siblings or friends of a star, players who are uh, who, ha- who are part of a management company that's very influential in the sport. So there are all sorts of reasons. Uh, generally, at least the players who get in on star power are getting in because they at some point have achieved something great. That's, that's where most players have earned their star power. And I think the power law is unfortunately a part of a sport that is an individual sport. I think another reason to like doubles and like team formats is that they take some of the pressure off the uh, individual star power and make make the sort of the playing ground in terms of draw and and appeal to fans and to tournaments more even i i do think the wild cards to qualifying are a nice compromise here and i wish that I understand why someone like Sharapova, former number one, multiple Grand Slam champion, is is getting the wild card straight into draws. But I think the wild cards into qualifying are a nice way for for cases like hers or maybe ones of players who aren't quite as accomplished as her to get on their feet and, and back into tournaments, but still show that they're good enough to be there. Like I, I drew the scenario before of what if Sharapova gets these wild cards but actually isn't in shape to play, which I don't expect, but suppose and she loses easily in the first round, that's going to be a huge embarrassment for the tournament. If you give a player a wild card into qualifying, they lose in qualifying, you haven't taken up a space in the main draw and you haven't uh, done it on the big stage. You haven't you know, had like a primetime match where, where the player lost. So I, I think that's a, an avenue into tournaments that, that should be used more for, for cases uh, where we want to make sure the Nicolescu's of the world still get into the main draw. But players whose ranking belies their accomplishment also have a shot. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree that the the qualifying wild card is is underrated and and probably underused because a different angle of what we're talking about here is outside of someone like Sharapova, it, it, there aren't very many cases where a wild card can be used for someone with legit star power and. And part of that is because both tours have a system now with protected rankings where if, if you're out of the game for six months or a year or longer, then you can come back to a, to a set number of tournaments with your pre-injury ranking. So someone like Juan Martin Del Potro, he'd, he'd get as many wild cards as he asked for for years probably, but he hasn't had to use a lot of them. Um, he's able to use his protected ranking to come back and as long as he's playing well, he builds up the ranking again. And what, what people with, with longer memories talking about wildcards tend to cite is that wildcards weren't originally designed as a, a way to, to give a boost to young players. Wildcards were originally designed for, for situations like Del Potro, people returning from injury. Um, and when you think about the term wildcard, that is really what it means. Like if, you, if you've got some promising 17-year-old, I mean, maybe if they're Boris Becker, they're, they're a legit wildcard. But eh, most 17-year-olds showing up at one of their first ATP events, it, 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 there's nothing wildcard about whether they're going to lose in the first round or the second round. But now we have this system where the players returning from injury don't need wildcards because there's a different system in place. But we also have tournament directors with the power to, to hand out uh, a, a, a sizable percentage of the spots in their main draw to players who, who, who haven't earned it either recently or in the past, like someone like Sharapova has. Uh, and I, I think that's one place for, for, some, um, for some changes to be made because you have, like, like I mentioned earlier, some, they, they tend to be concentrated in the hands of a few countries. Obviously, a, a country like the U.S. with so many tournaments, if there's one hot young player in the U.S., like there was Donald Young for a long time, Ryan Harrison for a long time, Patrick McEnroe for a long time before that, uh, you can end up with one player getting tons and tons and tons of these opportunities when, like you give the example with Sharapova, Sharapova can, if she goes and, and plays horribly in, you know, six or eight tournaments back, it's, it's pretty embarrassing for everyone involved. But we saw things like that happen with, with some prospects, like actually Andre Rublev, an interesting example now, he's not really showing much, but he, he continues to get a fair number of wild cards, um, even to tournaments outside of his home country. Um, but if you're a tournament director looking to leverage these wild cards, it's if there's not a Sharapova on the table or a Tommy Haas on the table or a, a, a really legit next generation star available for your tournament, um, I'm not sure how much benefit there is to be gleaned by handing a spot in the main draw to, to the, the highest ranked player from your home country. Like, I don't know, the U.S. Open gave a few spots to Rajiv Ram over the years. Like, Rajiv Ram's a good guy, he's a good player, but I'm not sure how many people he attracted to the U.S. Open by being in the draw instead of someone else entirely. I mean, so I would ask you then, Carl, like, it, it, do, you think there's, do you think there's much benefit? Like, I agree with you that tournaments directors should have, the, should have some ability to do what they need to do to, to keep their tournaments alive, to make them successful. But outside of the Sharapovas of the world, how much, how much benefit do you think it really gives them? I, I don't think it gives them much at all. I could see for some of the smaller tournaments outside of the slams, maybe a little bit of a boost from having more names from your own country in the draw. I, I think the main goal, though, isn't 
to increase the draw in those cases, uh, the young players from the same country, uh, occasionally with exceptions like Rublev or, or your man Casper from Norway. Uh, I, I said Casper because I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, so you, you can you can tell me uh, when it's your turn. But I, I think that it's more about a, a way to kind of hand some points to young players and give them a boost on their way up. I think national associations help certain young players in lots of ways, including funding and coaching and occasionally hosting at, at academies. And one of the other ways they help them is by giving them wild cards and occasionally they'll get a good draw and get points that maybe they're, they're and then they wouldn't have been able to get through qualifying and so on. And, you know, it's, it's an unequal sport and it's an unequal sport between countries. I mean, the, we're talking about all tournaments, but the slams are where most of the money is, or, or at least they are the wealthiest tournaments uh, individually. And having them in fixed countries gives those countries a real boost in terms of raising money each year that they can use to to help their own players. So wild cards are just another part of the inequity of the sport. I, I would I would be okay with a world in which the slams occasionally rotated, not only among sites within the same countries, but even within other countries. But then again, I just wrote a piece suggesting changing the scheduling slightly and got some feedback of the Australian Open can never move because it is during school holidays in Australia and that's amazing and something that can't be disrupted uh, because of the great atmosphere it creates. So, you know, it's a sport that doesn't change very quickly and until it it does that there there will be many ways in which certain countries have a leg up on on others yeah i think you make some good points and, and we're running out of time before we finish i want to i want to give a special thank you to my um my, my danish in-laws of sorts i'm i'm currently staying at a holiday house in langeland in denmark and um it's not as big as I thought, so it doesn't doesn't exactly give me the recording studio I would desire for this. But but um, eight people all went to to run to the store and, and take a walk, so so I could have a quiet place to record this. So um, that's actually really touching, and I really appreciate it. So that that is why you don't hear a lot of a, a lot of um, clutter in the background for our taping this afternoon. But for, for the last few minutes that I, I do have a quiet place to record, um, there's just a couple of different things I want to touch on. Um, Carl, you mentioned um, you've been pretty pretty free with reinventing the tennis calendar, the structure, all of that. The, if, if you haven't read it yet, listeners, I would encourage you to check out Carl's piece called Cool Down Tennis on Tennis Abstract. I believe he starts with a line like, like if, if you're anointed, the, the god of tennis. And, and I think, Carl, you've taken that to heart. Um, but I think it, I, I want to just do a couple lightning round questions on, on totally separate issues that, that I don't want to miss this week. First one is Nicholas Mahu was was in the press saying he didn't think Roger Federer would play the French Open. Um, we we already know he's going to skip the clay season until the French Open. Um, Carl, two questions: one, do you think he will show up at Roland Garros? And two, um, do you think he should? I think he will show up, although I think there's information he doesn't even have yet in terms of training on clay to decide it. I also think if he does, there's a chance that he will take one of those rare wild cards that you mentioned, uh, that it's a rare event where someone like Federer could get a wild card. But if he's like a late entry to Rome because he decides I might as well get a couple matches in before the French, then he could end up on clay. I think there's a tiny part of him that thinks that he can win the Grand Slam this year 
or at least ought to try because of such such a fractured, strange state of men's tennis. Do I think he should? Yeah, why not? I mean, there's now three weeks between the French Open and Wimbledon. I think he can play a certain style that guarantees that either he'll lose early or won't have to work very hard, a very aggressive, non-clay style. And then if that turns out to work for a few matches and he gets into the second week, then who knows? I, I, I don't think he should play it in a way that is very taxing and takes a lot out of him. You make a good point that he, he still could pop into Roma Madrid, and it's even easier than, than you suggest because the way the rules work, players are uh, players with a, with a high enough ranking are basically required. They're automatically entered into all the Masters except for Monte Carlo. Um, so unless there's a, been a recent change, he's on the entry list for both Madrid and Rome. So he, he probably will withdraw. But if he's starting to think, eh, maybe I will, maybe I won't, then he could just hold off on that decision for as long as possible. Um, second lightning round question. You mentioned earlier the, the doubles rubber that Jack Sox won this weekend, but he also lost a, a singles rubber in the Davis Cup second round against Australia. And that was to Nick Kyrgios, I believe. Um, Kyrgios won both of his rubbers against the U.S. And obviously Kyrgios has been playing pretty well this year. He's beaten Djokovic twice. Um, he, he came very close to being Federer. So, so in a lot of ways, he, he looks like the, the number two or number three player just on the basis of 2017 results. But of course, we don't really know what's going on in his head. He, he hates tennis. He does all kinds of crazy things. He hits tweeners when no one else on earth would hit a tweener. Um, but the idea of Nick Kyrgios with Leighton Hewitt on the sideline, kind of giving him the Leighton Hewitt brain, which is a, a very different entity, um, I made a joke in our notes that, that that's a recipe for greatest of all time, the Kyrgios body with the Hewitt brain. But do you think that do you think that for Kyrgios, having a coach like Hewitt, or I don't know who would be like Hewitt besides Leighton Hewitt, but but do you think there's a scenario in which Kyrgios could get the right coach and just you know, boom, be be a legit top three, top four player, maybe number one within a couple of years? Absolutely. I also think it could happen without a coach. I mean, he seems to be getting so much out of Hewitt just from Davis Cup. And if he keeps playing Davis Cup, and especially if some of the other top players don't, but even if they do, he probably will get in a lot of ties because Australia has a good team with him leading it. He'll get a lot of Hewitt time. Hewitt occasionally travels to other tournaments. He could have a coach in name only. And it could be that he only needs to hear from Hewitt occasionally. Uh, maybe the effect is already taken. I also think he's like tennis more the more he wins. It'll get more fun for him. Fans will like him more, and he will like the fans more. And I think he genuinely enjoys all the tweeners. By the way, you said no other human being would do it. I think Al Monfils would too, and maybe Dustin Brown. So there are others, but Kyrgios has probably got the most exciting future of, of guys who play that way. You mentioned he beat Sock. He is kind of Jack Sock with a better serve and a better backhand. And he could certainly ride his game to the top four even in the next 12 months. I wouldn't be shocked. Okay, one last lightning round question. The Charleston final was a big surprise. Most of the seeds dropped out pretty early, and we ended up with a final of Daria Kazakina against Elena Ostapenko. They're both, um, both players who prospect fans have been following for a long time. WTA released the fact that they are they're the first all-team final in, I think, eight years since Kvitova and Wickmeyer played each other um, eight years ago. So obviously there's a couple different paths you can take as, as a 19-year-old future star. I mean, Kvitova isn't, isn't Serena, but she's got Grand Slams to her name. Very, very good career. Wickmeyer is 
slightly different entity, uh, had some success, but currently languishing pretty far down the rankings. If you were to pick at this point, Kazakina, Ostafenko, who's the Kvitova, who's the Wickmeyer? Wow. Um, I'm going to say Ostapenko is the Kvitova on the basis of not much. It's hard to say with teens. Uh, what do you think? Um, I have a hard time with this one, too. I was hoping you'd have some insight into this question. I, I've seen both players quite a bit, actually, and, and they both fit the same, same general mold. They're both very aggressive, can be very erratic. Um, I... I my gut goes with Kazakina right now, partly because of, of uh, she beat Kerber earlier this year. She's, uh, based on current form, she's a little better. Um, but it is an interesting call, and that, that's something that I think we'll be talking a lot about in upcoming episodes, is how you, in, in upcoming research, apart from the podcast, is what you, what you can say based on a player's early career, whether it's rankings or, or titles or junior rankings, any number of things. Um, how well you can forecast the, the long-term future for a player because obviously there's something there. I mean, looking at these two players, you can say with, with some degree of probability that they're going to be pretty good. There's a lot of potential there. One of them could be great. Both of them could be great. Um, but on the other hand, it's especially in the women's game, I think there's a lot of teams over the years who've kind of fallen by the wayside. And some of that's, some of that's mental, some of that's phys physical, some of that is because maybe they just fluked into some good results early on. Um, but I think that, that that's something that has not been explored anywhere near as much as it should be in tennis analytics. And it's a question that a lot of stakeholders should care about from national federations to, um, to potential sponsors and, and certainly fans as well. Um, I'd, I'd like to know a lot more about this issue. So Carl, uh, thank you as always for joining me. Um, everyone who's listening, who's made it to the end of, of our second episode, I appreciate it. Um, Hopefully next week we'll have episode three for you, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, Jess. Thank you, Carl.